If you do have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 3. What's helpful to know in the section that we're at now, we are getting to the conclusion of the first major section of the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, Paul uh, started in chapter 1, verse 17, and said, but now righteousness from God has been revealed. And then in verse 18, he launches into kind of this excursus on why there's a need uh, for the righteousness of God to be revealed in the gospel. And, he, and so from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is basically showing why nobody, nobody can earn the smile of God by what they do. And yet everybody was made to live for the smile of God. The Bible says you were made to be in a relationship with God where you would know that he is pleased with you and loves you and smiles when he thinks about you. Hmm. And, um, and yet the, what Paul is going at great length to say here is you don't have the ability to get that smile. Now the Jews in a lot of ways thought that they had a special claim on the smile of God because he had blessed them in a number of different ways. And the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 is Paul responding saying, look, it doesn't matter even if you've had these special blessings, as much as they are real blessings, it's still not enough for you to be able to get the smile of God. The only way to get the smile of God is through the gospel. And what is the gospel? Literally it means good news. And so Paul, the section we're coming to now is the sort of the good news and the bad news. Uh, it's, the, it's the news that you're worse than you think you are. And that the gospel, the good news of the gospel is so much better than you've ever believed. And that's what we're looking at tonight. So let's start with chapter 3 of Romans. Start at verse 9. And again, you know, as we see right from the first words, this is the conclusion of the first major part um, of the letter. And then in chapter 21, he starts the next section. So we're, gonna, we're at that key turning point here in the book of Romans. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? And he means um, they're Jews. And he says, not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. That's Jews and people who aren't Jews. Doesn't matter which of those two categories you fit in, and you fit in one of those two. You're under sin. As it is written, and now here comes the longest string of Old Testament quotes anywhere in the New Testament. I think, because this is what Paul's going to get into teaching here, is not something that we easily accept. And so he quotes more scripture here to prove this point than uh, any other place in the New Testament. As it is written... There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, and he means law there in the sense of God's word, 
it says to those who are under the law. And that, by that he means the Jews. So what he's trying to say, the reason he's saying this is because all of these quotes, um, mostly from the Psalms, but some from Isaiah, are passages that when you read them in their Old Testament context, you would think that they're only talking about non-Jews. But Paul is saying, look, this stuff is true even of y'all. And what the, what the Bible says about human nature is true about not only people who are outside of sort of God's family, but even of those who are inside God's family. That's what he means here. So that, the law, what the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, and here's the grand conclusion to chap, chapter 1, 2, and 3, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, or some of your translations may say as a propitiation. And we'll explain that word later. God presented him as a propitiation or a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his, meaning God's, justice. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this portion of your word. We pray that you would help us to take it to heart, not just to understand it, but to take it to heart. And we pray that to that end, you would send your spirit to have your way among us. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now, I remember when I was in college and I first read these words, and I thought, why had never, nobody ever told me about this? Now, I don't know what your church background was growing up, but I'd always heard, especially since the time that I got around sort of evangelical Christians who like to talk about having a personal relationship with God, which for me was around ninth grade when that sort of started, when I began to even understand that that thing was possible. Um, I remember basically the impression I got was, God is this pitiful um, God who really, really, really wants to have a relationship with you. Um, and he's really pleading and hoping that you're going to give him a chance. And, you know, it's really up to you to, to invite God into your heart. You need to do that. And I remember the first time I read this passage in Romans chapter 3 and I went, that doesn't seem to be the same perspective that I've got, because I'd always thought that everybody I knew really wanted God, and all they really needed was for somebody to tell them where they could find him. Everybody really wants God. Maybe they don't even realize it, but they really want God. That's what I thought in my naivete, Um, and yet they don't know where to find him, and so that's sort of our job as Christians, is to help them know where to find him. And then I came upon this passage, and I was like, what in the world? There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Where 
does Paul get off saying this? Does that really make any sense to you? I mean, I know tons of people who I would say I've understood that they were seeking God. I've met with people that have told me they were seeking God, and I don't have any good reason to doubt them. So why does Paul say this? I think what we need to understand here is that I think especially if you are a Christian, then you're somebody who, who has found and has come to, I guess, be found by the truth that, as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. And a lot of times in sort of our, our lives as we're going around, it takes us maybe some time to figure that out. But once you figure it out, it sort of gives you a different perspective on your life that came before. You begin to even sort of trace themes in your life that maybe you didn't recognize the hand of God that was in them. But looking back, you can sort of see maybe God was working in my heart and drawing me even when I didn't realize it. And so I think then it's, it's easy to sort of look around and, and, and begin to think, well, everybody, even people that seem like they're living for for fun and a good time or living for relationships or living, you know, to find true love. Like all of them really are seeking after God because I know now that the true fulfillment of those things can't be found apart from God. And therefore, you know, everybody seeks God. And then you come to a passage like this. And here's what I think Paul is wanting us to understand. Because remember, this is the conclusion of this whole thing in which he said, look, there are some people who obey as best they can, the law that God has revealed in his word. There are other people who don't even have God's word, who even by their lives show that there is a moral law written on their heart. And, and they live lives that seem to evidence that they care about other people and they love other people and all that stuff. And yet, what the Bible would say, and again, this is a hard thing to swallow, which I think is why you get the longest string of Old Testament quotes that you get anywhere in the Bible. Paul knew that this was going to be difficult to accept, but he says it's absolutely vital if you would understand the good news. You need to understand that in reality, so much spiritual seeking is not really a desire for the God who is. In other words, we love to we love to think of God in very vague terms so that we can sort of lump so much of our life under the umbrella of seeking God or seeking something bigger than ourselves. But here's the thing. When you get to Christianity, you're not just, you're not just dealing with a vague God that you have to discover. This is the great gulf between Christianity, Judeo-Christianity, and the rest of the world's religions is that Christianity says God has spoken to us about what he's like and about what he requires. He hasn't left us wondering what he's like. And here's the thing, you know, I know it was Freud that, that said that sort of everybody, we kind of create these totems, you know, this whole totem pole thing that whatever it is you're really afraid of or you really value, then so you sort of make this production and you start to worship it. And I think that in a lot of ways that happens. But let me just tell you, the God of the Bible is not the kind of God you would invent if you were afraid of nature. He's not the God that you would invent if you were afraid of more powerful enemies so that you could find comfort. The God of the Bible is as scary as hell if you actually read the Bible, right? The God of the Bible says, look, no one understands. No one seeks me. I look at you and I see what's in your heart. 
And while you may tell people that you really want me, you don't want me on my terms. You don't want me on my terms. You want, you want the things I can give you. And guys, this is, I mean, honestly, when I sort of became a Christian in ninth grade, I, I honestly will tell you, I was more concerned about my loneliness than I was about my sin. And Christians were the only people that were nice to me. And I thought, if I, if I become a Christian and I join that group, then maybe they'll be nice to me. And I was, I was conscious of the fact that, yes, I agree, I'm a sinner. Okay, yeah, I need to agree to that. Yeah, I agree to that. That seems obvious to me. You don't have to convince me of that. But what I really, really want are friends. And all I can tell you is, really, from ninth grade till, gosh, I guess I was almost 30, I sort of lived this life really trying to use God as a means to an end. Not that I'm fully over that even now. But I really will tell you that so much of my spiritual experience was trying to get friends and using God to get them. And it seemed that he went out of his way to thwart that plan. Because God wants, well, God, it's not just that he wants. He knows that what we were made for was to worship him. And to find him to be our lovely source of true delight. Not to just be a means to an end to get us what we really want. And so I think what Paul is saying here is examine your heart. Whether you're, you consider yourself religious or not, what do you really want? Do you really want the God of the Bible the way he reveals himself to be? Somebody who says that you were made to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself, and you need to do that perfectly because it's what you were made for. Is that the kind of God you want? Is that what you really want? And what the Bible would say is, no, that's not what you really want because selfishness, what Martin Luther said so well, he called the inward curvature of the soul affects even your spiritual seeking. Now, sometimes Christians have gotten sort of confused by this. There were even some of the Puritans that had this idea that to really come to God in a pure way, in an authentic way, meant that you had to be willing for him to damn you for his own glory. And only when you were willing to be damned, then you could know that you really wanted God for God. Well, that's a little silly. But I think even more dangerous in our day is to use God as a means to an end. The whole world we live in is all about consumerism. And it's very difficult to sort of break out of that because, gosh, you know, here's the reality. When you come to Christianity, you're coming to something that says you didn't choose to buy this. It chooses you. Jesus said as much to his disciples, right? These guys that he said, come and follow me. They left their nets and they followed him. And later, as they're walking along, he says, you know what? You didn't choose me. I chose you. And like, well, Jesus, we, I remember when you said, come follow me, and, and we left our nets and we followed you. He said, yeah, but you didn't choose me. I chose you. That's what Christianity says. It's not a product that you buy. It's not a product that you buy. And if it was, uh, you know, and I told you what it really was about, I don't think you'd want it. Because I don't really want it. I don't really want to put God on the throne and worship him and all that comes with that. But you know what? Something has grabbed hold of me bigger than myself. And I finally gave in by his grace. That's what Christianity is about. And this is, this is what, what Paul's saying here. That we don't choose God. We don't want God for God. 
and we're unable to change that about ourselves. Later in chapter 8, verse 7, he's going to say it even more succinctly. He's going to say that the, 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 the heart of sinful man is at enmity, is at warfare with God. It does not obey him, nor can it do so. Paul is laying down here the inability. And th this kind of stuff comes up in the Bible all the time. Do you remember the story with Nicodemus? You probably know John 3.16. If you know any passage in the Bible, you've probably heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him. Do you know what comes right before that? Do you know the story that that's part of? This guy Nicodemus, who is the, the teacher. The, the Greek actually has the definite garment. He's the teacher of Israel. He comes to Jesus and wants to have a theological discussion with him. He says, um, you know, it just sort of, sort of launches into discussion. And Jesus, unprovoked, picks a fight with the guy and says, you need to be born again. And the guy was like, well, you know, uh, how can you enter back into your mother's womb and be born again? That's impossible. Jesus says, you're right, it's impossible, and you need it. <laughs> and, and the guy's like, I mean, this is, does not seem like evangelism, does it? What you need is impossible. And then Jesus says, the wind blows where it wills. You can't see it but you see its effects. So it is with everyone born of God. What you may not know is that Jesus is employing a little wordplay because in Hebrew, the word for spirit is the same as the word for wind. And he's saying the spirit goes where he wants. It's impossible for you, but you need it. But with God, it is possible. Because he takes dead people and makes them alive. See, here's the thing. When I was in college, I would say so much of my lack of joy and my lack of, of really getting Christianity, knowing what it was about, was I had this little tiny gospel. I had this good news, this story that I thought was good news, which said basically I was like a guy who was sort of out in the middle of the ocean and I was going down for the third time, and then Jesus threw me a life preserver, and thank God and thank Kevin that I grabbed hold of it. But that's not what's being talked about here. This is not everybody's trying to find that life preserver, and thank goodness that Jesus threw it out to us so we could grab a hold of it. No, this is you were dead on the bottom of the ocean floor. And the good news that is the real good news is that Jesus stripped off his dignity, dove in, dove to the bottom, dragged you up by the scruff of your neck, dragged you to the beach, breathed new life into you. That's good news if you really understand the human condition. If you really understand the human condition, the good news is good news indeed. So that's what's going on here. And I love the way this great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon put this. He said, you know, I put this quote down for you because I just love this so much. The believer, and I would say anybody that becomes a Christian senses this until they get discipled. This was my, like, I think most people that get converted will say, well, of course God changed my heart. And then they get discipled and told, well, no, it was really you and what you did. And now the Christian life is all about you and what you do. But here's what Spurgeon said, and I think, I think he's got it better. He says the believer knows that his faith is not a weed indigenous to the soil of his heart, but a rare plant, an exotic plant which has been planted there by divine wisdom. 
And he knows that if the Lord does not nourish it, his faith will die like a withered flower. He knows that his faith is a perpetual miracle, for it is begotten, sustained, and preserved by a power not less mighty than that which raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. If you find faith in your heart, thank the Lord for it. Because that's where it came from. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you have been saved, and this not of yourselves, lest any man should boast, or any woman should boast. So here's the thing. The Bible says you're worse than you think. The Bible says you don't have the ability to love God. You don't have the ability to please God. And while that may sound like a really horribly depressing message, I will tell you, if you embrace it, it actually, you'll actually find a strange sort of freedom in that. Because as long as you think that just trying a little harder will finally get you what you want, peace with God, if you, as long as you think that if I was just a little more disciplined, a little more sacrificial in my love, and all I need to do is try this stuff a little more consistently, a little more rigorously, as long as you think that, you will be in perpetual slavery. And the, the best good news that I can tell you tonight, if that's where you are, is stop and repent and collapse upon Jesus. And quit beating your head up against the side of a brick wall. You know, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, was living like this before he got converted, Jesus broke into his life like a, with, with this great light, you remember? And his voice spoke to Paul and he said, Paul... Why are you kicking against the goads? Do you know what goads are? Goads are spikes that you use to drive into the rear end of your ox to make it go where you want. How do you, how do you like to kick against the goads in a culture where they always wear sandals? Right? That's a very, it's a very graphic picture. But for some of y'all, you're miserable because you still, still don't know if God loves you. Because you still don't know if you've done enough. How do you know if you've done enough? Right? How do, you, how do you know? Well, that's the bad news. But look at verse 21. There's some great buts in the Bible. This is one of the most spectacular. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, this great British preacher, preached an entire sermon on two words, but God. Because the whole gospel is contained in those two words, but God. We just had three chapters of you can't do it. You really, there's more evil in your heart than you realize. It affects everything you do. It doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be. You actually could be worse. And, and part of that is because of God's restraining influence in your life. But everything that you do and think and live for is, is, par, is probably sin. People are like, I'm trying to examine my heart to see, you know, if, if I'm really doing this out of a pure motive or if it's really selfish. And I can say, don't waste your time. Selfishness is mixed in with everything you do. It is. But God. Now, this is extraordinary. Mar uh, Leon Morris, who's a famous uh, New Testament scholar, said that verses 21 through 26 are the most important, is the most important paragraph that's ever been written. Martin Luther said that this is the crux of the whole letter and the most important paragraph, basically, that's ever been written. What's the big deal? Don't you want to know? If people who have spent their whole life studying the Bible think that this paragraph is the most important paragraph that's ever been written, why? What's the big deal? 
Here's the big deal. The big deal is, in light of who we are, and in light of three chapters that Paul has really kind of belabored the point that we're sinful and unwilling to come to God, and in light of who he is, holy and righteous and pure, it's truly amazing that the Bible doesn't end with Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Do you understand this? Why should there be any more? No one, therefore, see it's the conclusion, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. And because you're a sinner, that's it. Story over. But it's not where the story ends. But God changes everything. Not, but I really am better than you think, Kevin. No, but God. But God. Your whole hope is that but God is true and is real. And it is. This pattern, actually, this shows up all over the place. If you have a computer Bible or you go to Bible Gateway, you should just look up this phrase, but and God, and see how many times it appears in the New Testament within like four or five words of each other. It's all over the place. The heart of the gospel is but God. But God. But God what? But God did something did something huge. And here we get the heart of the gospel unveiled. It says this, but now a righteousness from God, apart from law. In other words, you couldn't get this righteousness by obeying the law or doing good things. Has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. That means this is the message of the Old Testament, Paul's saying. The law and the prophets testify to this, but you don't get this righteousness from God by obeying the law. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Jesus Christ is the turning point of history. The story was a bad story with a dreadful ending, but it took a sudden turn. Not an unforeseen turn turn if you really paid close attention to what God was saying. There were lots of foreshadowings that this story was going to take a turn. But nobody could imagine the turn that it took. That God would take on flesh, become a man, and allow himself to be tortured to death by people who deserved death and hell and deserved to be blotted off the face of the earth. Nobody could have foreseen that. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It means that the story can have a happy ending, happy beyond your wildest dreams. It's a shocking turn because verse 20 says, we've all sinned and nobody will be declared righteous. What is righteousness? Righteousness is sort of this, this, we think of it as a Christian word. It actually is a legal word from Paul's day. And it means to basically have the legal standing that is the result of perfect behavior. Righteousness in God's sight. Nobody will be declared having the legal status of perfect behavior in God's sight by what they do. But still, it's going to come to them. Do you see how extraordinary this is? No one will get this status by what they do, but they will still get it. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means that to be justified, to be seen as righteous in God's sight, is so much better than just getting a fresh start. It means that you're now seen 
as having the beauty that comes from doing everything God ever wanted. Can you imagine what it would be like to feel that and to know that that was true, that you are as beautiful in God's sight as somebody who's done everything he ever asked for? Can you imagine that? But that's what Paul says has come to us. You couldn't possibly get it, but it's been given to you. It's come to you through faith in Jesus Christ, freely, freely. And, and then there's a specific objective content. If you, if you ask Paul, well, tell me more, because I will tell you, when I graduated high school, I knew that I needed to be justified by God's grace and that the cross had something to do with that, but I couldn't explain to you what it meant. I couldn't. I was content with a superficial understanding of the most important paragraph ever written in the history of mankind. And it was no wonder that my life was plagued with fear and doubt and selfishness and trying to use God as a means to an end because having friends was more beautiful to me than the fact that the perfect Son of God lived and died a torturous death in my place. I was trying to get friends who would eventually let me down and I was oblivious to the fact that the only true friend I ever had had blood on a cross for me. And that didn't really move my heart at all. All I thought was that God had not fulfilled his end of the bargain and I was growing more and more frustrated with him. Oblivious to the most important paragraph ever written. What, is it, what does it mean here that it says that we have faith in his blood? Look at verse 25. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is a lot of objective content. And I know, unfortunately, so many people think that, that they're sort of, they just basically have to hope that God loves them and they live based on their feelings. And some days you feel like God loves you and some days you're not so sure. But this passage is full of objective content. God did something, but God, not but God loves you, so cheer up. No, but God sent his son to be a sacrifice of atonement, to turn aside his wrath. That's what that word propitiation means. So that we could be united with him. That God sent his son to be a sacrifice so that we could be ransomed. Redemption means to pay a price that ransoms a slave. And that's what Jesus does. But also, there's another way of looking at it, and Paul's combining all of them together here. You're the slave who's been, the ransom price has been paid for you, but you also are the one who has had a sacrifice made on your behalf that turns aside the justly deserved wrath of God that hangs over your head. And it's all about the blood, faith in his blood. Paul will not let you get away with thinking that as long as you think God thinks think Jesus is a great guy and you admire him, that that's enough. No, faith in his blood is required. At the heart of Christianity is a bloody cross. Not, God is not impressed if you're impressed with Jesus. God says, do you have faith in his blood? In other words, do you believe that apart from the grace of God, you deserve death and hell? And have you cried out to him and claimed the blood of Christ to take your place? Faith in his blood. Christ's sacrifice, Paul also goes on, demonstrates God's justice. Now this is really interesting. 
Now, for us, you may think, like, we don't care very much about God's justice. We actually have a problem with God's justice in our day and age. Uh, In Paul's day, people were very concerned, how could God justify or welcome sinful people into his family? How could he do that? He's holy. We tend to not have a very high opinion of God's holiness in our day and age. And we rather sit in judgment upon God, not saying, God, you're too forgiving, which is what a lot of the Jews thought. You're way too forgiving. They were scandalized usually by Jesus' mercy. We're scandalized in our day by God's, by God's wrath and by him saying that sin is sin. You understand? Do you understand how it's even your objections to Christianity are socially conditioned? But that's a topic for another day. Um, but but here, here's the point. God, for God to overlook, do you, have you ever read the Old Testament? There is some crazy stuff in the Old Testament. There's guys like Jephthah. Do you know Jephthah in the book of Judges where he wins this victory and so he tells God that when he gets home, whoever comes out of his house first, he'll sacrifice and his daughter comes out first and the Old Testament Judges says that he did to her as he vowed. That's crazy. Do you know there's David, the man after God's own heart, who basically takes this woman. They didn't, Bathsheba did not have an affair with David. Do you understand? He was the king and he did what he wanted. And then he had her husband killed to cover it up. He's not a nice guy. Right? He's a Near Eastern warlord. Lording his power over poor defenseless people. How in the world can that guy get into heaven? Now that may not bother you. But it may bother you if you've been abused. Or you've been the victim of really difficult stuff at the hands of wicked people. Then you wonder, how can those people... See, here's the thing. Some people are really offended by God's grace, and some people are offended by his justice. And the cross fully satisfies all of that. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. What Paul says here is that God... The only way to get into heaven is to have your sin paid for. And every sin will be dealt with. There will be no loose ends at the end of time. Everything will be dealt with. Every sin will be paid for. So how do people in the Old Testament, before Jesus came and died on a cross, how can they, how can, how can they get into heaven? How can God be just and not punish David for what he did? And the answer is God postponed punishing David. Until Jesus came. That God overlooked for a time the sin of people like David. But Jesus suffered not just for our sin and the sin of people who came after the cross. But Jesus even suffered all of the punishment that God had been postponing. And you begin to get a sense of why in the Garden of Gethsemane he shrank from what was before him. He prayed, God, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. The book of Isaiah had talked about the cup of God's wrath that would be poured out upon his enemies. And Jesus, as he prepares to drink that cup to the very dregs, says, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass. Because every wicked thing that had ever been done by one of God's people had been postponed until that moment. 
And he suffered every bit of the punishment for that. Not to mention all of us and all the people that would come after. It's mind-boggling. But that's what Paul's saying here. That there is no sin that will not be paid for either on the head of Jesus or on the head of the person who committed it. Justice will be satisfied. Not only satisfied, but justice will smile. Because in the cross, God's fully satisfied. Now, what, is, what does this mean? What, does this make a difference in how you live? I think so. I think the only way that you can get real and permanent peace is because God, the cross was the demonstration of God's justice. Listen, if you think that the reason God loves you is because he woke up and just sort of willy-nilly decided to smile at you today, how do you know that you'll have that smile tomorrow? If you think that the reason God loves you is because of what you've done or what you haven't done, well, then your peace is really thin ice. Because how do you know that you'll toe the line tomorrow? Right? Some of the most miserable people I've ever met are Christians, people who've professed to follow Jesus and then sin in ways they never dreamed was possible. And they're inconsolable because they think, I should have known better. And, and, and they, don't know, they don't know that Jesus at the cross paid for all of your sin. And God said, it is finished. And when Jesus was risen from the dead, it means that God was fully satisfied with his sacrifice. The only way you can have real peace is to know that justice was fully served on your behalf. That God is not cutting you a break at all. As a matter of fact, this guy Martin Lloyd-Jones said at one point, there's a place in 1 John where it says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. That's a strange phrase because you would think it would say God is faithful and merciful, but it says faithful and just. And Lloyd-Jones says that if Jesus lived and died in your place, it would be unjust of God to punish you for your sins. He says, I say that with trembling, but boldly based on the word of God, that if Jesus died in your place, justice was served. That's the only place that you can really get real and permanent peace. It also, I would say, another reason that all this stuff matters is because theology matters, guys. I know theology has a bad name, but listen, do you think it matters that before the foundation of the world, the God of the universe put his, set his love upon you? That he sent his son to live on this earth? To live a righteous life? And then to die a torturous death so that you could get credit for his righteousness? And he would take your punishment so that you would know that you could never be separated from the love of God, that there could be no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus, that you would be justified, adopted, sanctified, glorified, all these things. You think that that doesn't matter? You think it doesn't matter whether you believe that or not? It matters a ton. And finally, I'll say this. It matters that justice and love are fully satisfied. Uh, I'll just close with this. There's this really fascinating book by G.K. Chesterton. 
Anybody ever read any G.K. Chesterton? I bet a couple of you have. Uh, great writer, Catholic, English writer, um, sort of a little ahead, you know, ahead of C.S. Lewis, but very similar. And he writes these amazing essays, but he also wrote fiction and detective stories, all kinds of stuff. Really, a, a, a really amazing guy. He could sort of write with both hands at the same time and dictate other letters. Really a genius kind of guy. One of my favorite stories about Chesterton is the, uh, I think it was the London Times posted a question, what's wrong with the world? And he sent, back, he sent in a letter with two-word answer, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. And then he wrote a, like a 300-page book for, you know, explaining what he meant and called it What's Wrong with the World. It's a great book. Anyway, but he also wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And in there, he talks about the paradoxes of Christianity. He was not somebody who just grew up as a Christian and never struggled with believing it. He really um, grew up as somebody and or at, you know, at some point would say, I was not a Christian. I wasn't interested in Christianity. But listen to this testimony, he says. Um, he talks about how some people criticize Christianity because it makes men too warlike. Right? And they'll point to the Crusades and whatnot. Like, how could I believe in a religion that gets people to kill other people? And then other people say that Christianity makes people too lamb-like. There's a guy, Edward Gibbon, who talks about the, the um, rise and decline of the Roman emperor and he, empire. And he says that when the empire became Christian, that the Romans quit being warlike and eventually they were taken over. So Christianity kind of ruined the Roman empire. So people, different critics have different opinions about all this stuff, right? And, and um, Chesterton says he's reading all this. And he says, you know, I would hear one critic criticize Christianity for this, and then I'd read the next guy who would criticize Christianity for the exact opposite reason. And, and after going back and forth like this a few times, it began to sort of this strange idea sort of began to form itself in my mind. What if, what if Christianity is actually the normal, true thing, and that all the critics are crazy or mad in different ways. And he says, imagine if this guy came, you heard about a guy who had visited this village, and some people said he was too tall, and some people said he was too short. Um, you would try to figure out, well, what must he really look like? Um, well, he must be a really strange, odd shape, you know? Uh, unless, unless the problem is with the people who are critical of him. Maybe outrageously tall people think he's too short, and outrageously short people think he's way too tall that maybe Christianity is right and all the critics are mad for various reasons. And here's what he says at the end of this little section. He says, Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both and keeping them both furious. In other words, if you think that the cross or sort of the love of God sort of tempers the justice and the wrath of God, so that he's not really loving and he's not really wrathful. It's sort of like some in-between thing. You don't understand Christianity at all. The heart of Christianity is that the wrath of God is fully, fully demonstrated. And that's important. You know why that's important? Because you long for justice and for things to be made right. And if God's justice can be swayed then how do you know that things will ever be put right? How do you know? How do you know that, that the person that wronged you will ever, will ever be dealt with if the justice of God can be swayed or can be uh, muted? And how do you know, how do you know that the love of God is real unless you see the cross? In other words, the cross means that the wrath of God is real and it's true. 
And the love of God is real and it's true. This is a remarkable thing, the way he closes, and I'll close with this. He says, the lion lays down with the lamb. It says that in Isaiah. It promises that one day, right? But he says, remember, this text is too lightly interpreted. It's constantly assured or assumed that when the lion lies down with the lamb, the lion becomes lamb-like. Is that how you think that works? That eventually lions will quit being lions so they won't eat lambs? He says, that's a brutal annexation and imperialism on the part of the lamb. That is simply the lamb absorbing the lion instead of the lion eating the lamb. The real problem is, can the lion lie down with the lamb and still retain his royal ferocity? In other words, the real problem is, can God still be a just God and promise with integrity to set everything right if he lets wicked people off the hook. I mean, you may not think that injustice bothers you very much, but I don't know. Well, how if you had a professor who basically just randomly gave out A's and failing grades and never read your papers? You know, I had, I had a situation like that in college. I wrote a paper on Frank Zappa, and I took it to the head of the Department of English at Berkeley College of Music, and they looked at it, and the guy said, wow, I see you know how to organize your thought into paragraphs, ripped up the paper, and passed me out of English comp. Now, at one level, I was elated. I got out of the class. But later, I began to think, why did I work so damn hard on that paper? <laughs> if all he was going to do is just see that I organized my thoughts into paragraphs, I wasn't very satisfied with that. And that pales in comparison to what some of you are hoping and longing for, for things to be made right. Do you think the people that sell little girls into sexual slavery, it doesn't bother you that they can be forgiven and get into heaven? Right? Christianity keeps furious opposites furious. The the justice of God the love of God, are both much bigger than you think. And the good news is they come together at the cross. So it says in that great hymn, when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let me pray and then we'll sing.